0: through our study in Henry Scudder's book The Christian's Daily Walk and we've been through several aspects of it already. We've looked at some very fundamental, foundational aspects of what it is to walk with the Lord, some some key principles of, you know, generally speaking of walking with the Lord, and we've gone through uh few studies of beginning the day with the Lord, what it is to start out in the morning walking with God and having that right mindset at the beginning of the day with the Lord. And then last week we were looking more specifically at walking with the Lord on the Lord's day and just some very general principles of the the Christian Sabbath and keeping the Lord's day. Well, in the next section of his book, he deals with walking with God alone or um, he says in solitude but walking with God alone and then walking with God in company and so we're going to deal with both of those things but today we're going to focus our attention on what it is to walk with God alone and Lord willing next week we'll come to walking with God with company you know friends family co-workers people that are around you but we'll jump right in here to Roman numeral one and his first recommendation of walking with God alone, no joke, don't be alone. That's what he recommends. And it's a good recommendation. So walking with God alone, limit that time. Don't be alone. That's how he starts. I'll read you what he says here. I, I put it in your notes so you can read along with me. He, fa- he says, affect Not to much solitude. Be not alone, except you have just cause, namely when you separate yourself for holy duties, and when your needful occasions do withdraw you from society. For in other cases, two are better than one, and woe be to him that is alone. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look at some uh, passage of Scripture here the very beginning of, of time, we're on day six, I guess. But look at Genesis 2 and verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. And then pay very careful attention to what happens next. What happens next is interesting. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowls of the air, And to every beast of the field. And so, all these, everything that God had made, all the mammals, all the birds, all the reptiles, I guess, everything was brought before Adam right after God said, It's not good that man is alone. And so, Adam sees all these pass by. And there's two of all these things. And here they come. And so, he gives them names bovine, you know, equestrian. What's the name for a horse? Equestrian. Equestrian? Well, that's what a horse rider is. What is it? Equestrian. I have no idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) We'll just skip that, pretend that, that, that never happened. So he said all the names of all these cons, or all these things came by. And there wasn't one suitable for Adam. And so that's what it says at the end of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. There was a help, if you will. There was a pair of all these other things, but nobody compatible with Adam, nobody to help him. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh. Instead thereof, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And so there's the helper. That's what God had designed From the beginning, it's not good for the man to be alone, Pairs, And so God made that helper. And so there is this general principle in Scripture that we are not created to be mavericks. We're not created to be lone rangers in this world. We're not created to, to go it alone. We're just not made for that. So turn to Ecclesiastes 9 now. And let's look at the words of of the preacher here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and what Solomon says to us. And we learn here that it is important for us to cultivate godly friendships, to cultivate godly relationships that will help us in our walk with the Lord more consistently, so, so this don't be alone that Henry Scudder is emphasizing and directing our attention to goes far beyond just simply, if you're a young man, you need to get a wife. If you're a young lady, you need to get a husband. It's, it's way more than that. Now, that is a biblical principle as well, but it, it's, it's more than that. It's that companionship and friendship that God has built into us to to need that in our lives. And so look what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 9, start there. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a 3 cord fold is not quickly broken. So two is better than one. Three is better than two so far. Ecclesiastes 9? No, nope, I'm not. You're right. You know what I did? Let me let you guys into a secret. I looked at the book and it was IV 9. And so I, I typed in my notes 9, and then I realized, no, IV is 4, and I never changed it in my notes. That's what happened. I'm very sorry. Chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Sorry for that. I, I, I distinctly remember doing that, and I remember realizing that it was four and not nine, and I never changed it in my notes. So, sorry. I'm sorry? Well, that's good, too. <laughs> Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest. So, there you go. So, all, yeah, all that's, all that's relevant. But, hey, I'm a man of many mistakes. But here's the thing. It's not always practical to always be in somebody else's company. It's, it's not possible sometimes. And so sometimes it is necessary for us to be alone. Sometimes circumstances of life put it to where we are alone. Uh, um, a woman who is a widow, a man who is a widower, a young person who is still single, living on their own, they're alone. And so there are some good admonitions that Henry Scudder gives to us in, in this book about Walking with the Lord, even in solitude, even when we don't have a companion to help us in our walk with the Lord, here's what he says. The first one is to be watchful when alone. He uses the phrase, solitariness is Satan's opportunity. My mom used to always say, and maybe you've heard this before, an idle mind is the devil's workshop. And heard my mom say that over and over and over. It's actually a mistranslation of a verse in Proverbs 26. Um, I say a mistranslation, it's Hebrew homonyms could get you to, the, to that translation, but none of the standard translations of, of the Bible, the King James doesn't have that, but it, none of the other ones, uh, modern translations or anything, have that translation. But that's where it comes from. That's where that phrase comes from. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. And even though we can't say it's a verse from scripture, we can generally understand the sentiment there. An idle mind is the devil's workshop. What you think about when you don't have anything to think about really says something about your true character. It shows you where your heart's affections really are. When you're alone, in solitude, nobody's watching, nobody can read your mind, where your mind goes, like like the, the primary place that your mind goes, really is an indicator of where your affections lie, those things that you love and crave, not that you can never think about, you know, football, I think about football sometimes, or basketball, or you know, whatever sport you name it or whatever your hobby is or, you know, whatever your other engagements or activities, you know, whatever it is you like. It's not that you never think about those things. But if you find yourself in solitude and your mind, more often than not, wanders into some place of sin, well, then that says something of your real character. Never underestimate, never underestimate Satan's desire to shoot you with one of his fiery darts. We're told in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world. And Satan has every intent of shooting you with one of his arrows. He has every intent of picking you off. And when you find yourself alone, uh, not engaged in redeeming the time as we'll get to in a moment you must be watchful because it's in those moments that you are a prime target we can illustrate this somewhat with some some people in scripture think about some of the great sins i don't mean great in that they're they're good i mean like the notable sins of scripture I just picked three that just immediately came to mind. David and his sin with Bathsheba. David was supposed to be someplace different than he was. It was the time that kings went off to war. And David was alone in his bedroom, looking out the window. He was in a time of solitude, and he saw, coveted, and took. He saw Bathsheba, coveted, and, and put a plan in motion to, to fulfill out all those desires. Had he been engaged in what he was supposed to be doing, you know, we have a different story. Elijah had, I mentioned Elijah this morning in the, the Sunday message. I maybe mean, that's where he came to mind so quickly, but um, Elijah had just been on... Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal and you know the altar and the fire and all this and a tremendous victory just a tremendous victory and he anticipated something happened very different. Jezebel says I won't kill you in 24 hours and so Elijah alone runs for his life and he finds himself out in the wilderness all alone and He's sitting under a juniper tree. He's like, Lord, I'm worthless. Just take me now. And he's there in solitude, discouraged in the depth of despair. I mentioned Peter here. He's not so much alone because he's he's with other people, but he's alone spiritually. Peter had had vowed, Lord, I would die for you. I'm I'm never going to forsake you. And the whole event happened. Peter cut off Malchus's ear. They take Jesus away. The disciples disperse. You know, everybody's running their own, their own way. And Peter, alone, outside of the, the circle of, of spiritual help, if you will, is there around that campfire, and he's confronted, and he falls. He sins greatly. This is just a by the way. I was looking at this verse. This is free. No charge. In 1 Peter 3 it's where we read, be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. And it dawned on me yesterday when I read that verse, Peter was the guy that didn't give an answer for the hope that lied within him. And went out and wept bitterly. You talk about a man that learned his lesson. And so then he writes an epistle later. And he says, you know, I messed up in this really, really badly. Be always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. I was encouraged by that. That's free. Anyway, so be watchful. Be watchful when you are alone because it is a time that Satan will pick you off. He also makes the point of not having a conversation with sin. I think this is a phrase that I've heard Jan use. What do you have? A tea party with your sin? Is that the way you say it? Sit down and have a cup of tea with your sin. Right. Sit down and have a cup of tea with your sin. Yeah. So he, he says, you know, substantively the, the same kind of thing. So you take the example. We're not going to turn this up and read it, but you take the example of Eve and the serpent Eve and the serpent have this back-and-forth conversation. And when Satan begins to to challenge the Word of God, Eve doesn't just shut it down. She responds, and and it's back-and-forth and 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 back-and-forth. And there's this conversation with sin, if you will, and it opens the door so much more widely to temptation. And when we find ourselves alone... We're much more willing to justify the sin in solitude that you would never do if you knew somebody else was watching, if you knew somebody else was there. Now, this is one of the things we talked about early in the very first lesson of walking with the Lord, living in the fear of God, living with a mindset that God is always present, God always sees, God always knows and in that sense, and from that perspective, we're never alone. You know, we're, we're talking about walking with God in solitude. But really, from, from that other perspective, we're never alone. We're always in the presence of God. He always sees, he always knows. Scudder also warns against what he calls contemplative wickedness. He says, I'll just, I'll, it's not a direct quotation, but I'll read you what he says here. He says that contemplative wickedness is feeding your fancy and pleasing yourself with covetous, lustful, revengeful, ambitious, or other wicked thoughts that for fear or shame you dare not do in public, or for want of opportunity or means, you cannot act on otherwise. And and so what he he means by this contemplative wickedness, when you're alone, this kind of goes back to the, the idea and the thought that I said earlier, that where your mind wanders to when you don't really have anything else to think about says much of your character. Well, if your mind is wandering to contemplative wickedness, as he's talking about here, and you think of sins that, let's face it, you would do if you could do, but you can't do because you don't have the means to or the opportunity to, and and that category could be rather large, and I'll I'll let you make your own application. Don't think about sin. Don't sit and and contemplate what you would do if you could do, but you can't do because you're too embarrassed to do, or it would be too much of a shame if you ever got caught doing. Don't admire the sinful actions of others and wish in some way that you could do the same, but I can't because I'm a Christian. I think you understand what I mean. Don't glamorize sin. These are things that our minds tend to do when we're alone. They're, they're things we tend to have private thoughts about. And and to have any affection for sin whatsoever is sin. You you take the opposite of what we're talking about here. You take the Lord Jesus when he was alone. So he's out in the wilderness. For 40 days he had been alone, and he was tempted. But yet his mind was so saturated with Scripture. He had nothing in him to answer to sin, but his mind was so, was so saturated with Scripture that even in his solitude, he wasn't tempted by these things. He didn't have contemplative thoughts of wickedness. He, he didn't look at you know, the pleasures of sin for a season and think to himself, man, I wonder what that would be like for a day. He never had that thought. He was perfectly holy. He was one, in the truest sense of the word, that did number three, truly redeemed the time. And so, Scudder argues here that to make sure, or when, we're, when we find ourselves alone, make sure that you find yourself profitably engaged when you are alone. That doesn't necessarily mean, and remember what we were talking about in earlier lessons of, of casuistry and applying God's law and, and taking these principles in these hard and fast ways and the the tendency that there would be to be you know, a lot of bondage wrapped up in, in what we're talking about here. Redeeming the time doesn't mean that you can never have any amusement. Redeeming the time doesn't mean that you can't sit and you know just... Talk with your friends about nothing you're just stuff your life you know whatever it is it doesn 't mean you can 't do that it doesn 't mean you can 't play a game it doesn't mean you can 't be involved in something that you know really has no value at all the Puritans were were hard on this the Puritans were you know they they preached a lot against amusement um, and just you know your brain turned off and not thinking at all but I think there can be an argument made for wholesome amusement, wholesome building of friendships. Because that's what's what's going on in, in playing games and, and having conversations just about stuff in general. There still can be some profit to that. And so as Scudder puts it here, he argues that you should be engaged in either some aspect of your work, reading, or meditating. And he kind of puts prayer and meditating kind of in one bucket, but kind of the the same thing there. But these these are his recommendations. When we find ourselves alone, have our minds profitably engaged. And so that's why I've labeled this point, redeeming the time. And so he gives directions for reading. Obviously, he recommends primarily reading the scriptures, but he he does speak of reading other good and profitable works. But in these directions, let's look up some verses here just as a way of help. Look up 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. And verse 14. And so what he, what he directs our thinking to here. In your reading, when you you pick up the scriptures, always pick up the scriptures in an attitude of prayer, asking for help of the Holy Spirit in understanding and applying the word, In, in taking that word from the page through the head, yes, but from the page through the head to the heart that the Holy Spirit would apply and give you understanding in that word. And so the verse he references is 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. And really, this is the point that he makes. They're spiritually discerned. So in, in your reading of Scripture, this would apply to your reading of other you know, Christian books, you know, whatever, whatever other Christian book you, you might be reading. Ask for the Holy Spirit's help and understanding and discernment in application because ultimately the scriptures are something that are spiritually discerned. The second thing he says is receive it with humility. So look up 1 Thessalonians 2. This is a verse that we referenced a couple weeks ago. First Thessalonians two for this cause, verse thirteen. Sorry, First Thessalonians two, verse thirteen. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And so there's a humility that we must have as we come to the scriptures. We've talked before about the Bereans. You know, the Bereans were more noble in that they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. Now, the Bereans are actually being compared to the Thessalonians. And and the Thessalonians, Paul praises them because they received the word as it is in truth, the word of God. The Bereans are said to be more noble Because they searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. The Bereans, I remind you, were discerning. They weren't critical. They were careful. And there's a difference. They weren't searching the scriptures to see whether or not these things were so because they were skeptical about what Paul was preaching. But they were careful. They were contemplative. They were discerning. And they compared scripture with scripture, that these things were so. Uh, Number three, I don't know why I didn't put a verse here, James chapter 2, be a doer of the word. So you know the verse in James, be a, a doer of the word and not a hearer only. There are many that read and even read with a level of understanding there seems to be never any application. There there seems to never be any real change, any real difference. We know from the parable of the soils that Christ gave that there are some that would receive the word. That word would spring up into something and quickly fizzle out again because there's no real fertile soil. These or those, at least according to the parable that Christ gave, that really are not truly converted because the, the seed really never takes any root. What they have is really just an outward show with, with, no, with no root system of truth in them. There's no regenerated heart. There's no conversion. There's just an outward show. And so we're careful in reading the Scriptures. We read with a redeemed heart and we are doers of the word. And then fourth one, read with a hunger for a greater knowledge of God. And he references 1 Peter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And you know what a baby is like when it starts crying for food. Well, it's not, I mean, it's not going to stop crying until it gets food. Um, There's some 44-year-olds that, do similar things. But you, you desire food. You want food. Well, spiritually, do you have that same kind of hunger for a greater knowledge of the Lord? And so then he does speak of reading outside the scriptures, uh, reading those things that are profitable, reading those things that are worthy, that are excellent. Uh, you know, we can apply that passage of scripture uh, whatsoever is of of good report. Think on these things. And so he he acknowledges, and I think you all understand, not everything you read has to be religious or, or necessarily educational. It's not that you always have to have a, a science or history book or whatever, but, you know, you can read the great Christian classics of literature that are excellent and have, uh, you know, stories of, of moral virtue and value and, and those kinds of things that can be edifying, can lift your spirits, can be Encouraging, can be relaxing. All these things are are good for us. And then Scudder makes another important point that I think is is worthy of mentioning. He makes the point that if you have an opportunity to choose between, he doesn't word it this way because his context was different, but basically, if you have a choice of stay home and read my Bible or go to church and sit under the preaching of the word, he would recommend always go to church and sit under the preaching of the word. There's a primacy that God has put on, a premium that God has put on preaching. The preaching of the word of God is the God-ordained means of communicating truth to men. He's given us the scriptures. Don't undermine the scriptures in any way whatsoever. He's given us the scriptures. But he doesn't say that it's by the foolishness of reading the scriptures that men are converted. He says it's by the foolishness of preaching. And so he puts a a primacy, a, a, a premium on the preaching of the word of God. Now, obviously, the reading of scripture and the preaching of the word, praying, all these things go hand in hand. And there's is a way you don't separate the two. And I'm not arguing for that at all. But he puts a premium. God puts a premium. I'm not, I'm not saying Henry Scudder does. He does. But I'm saying God does. Puts a premium on the preached word of God. And that is very important. And then directions for meditation. We don't have a lot of time here. We'll finish this out here. And he really just gives bullet points here on, on meditating. On God as person and his works thinking through who God is, what God has done. You know, and we have many helps for this. This is one of the reasons why we go through the catechism, for example, and we, we go through these over and over, and you know, we cycle through the catechism over and over so that just by exposure our mind is saturated with these crystallized truths of doctrine. What is God? What, what is this God that I worship? Well, He's infinite. Well, What does that mean? And you think of, of the infinity of God. He's eternal. He's unchangeable. And, and think of, of the attributes and how all those apply. And you think forever, right? Forever on, on these truths and meditate on that. Whether or not, or another thing to meditate on is whether or not your thinking and actions measure up to the Word of God. This overlaps greatly with what we were looking at a couple weeks ago. Of beginning your day with the Lord, and when he talks about preparing your heart to pray, and, and remember, I think it was lesson four, three, three or four, whatever. Um, preparing your heart to pray, even before you, dear Father in heaven, before you get to that part, what am I going to be praying about? And he emphasizes there of meditating on your own life and. I think the way he put it is, is, is you're measuring up to the law of God, basically thinking through the Ten Commandments and how have I broken these? What sins do I need to repent of? What are the ways that I have gone astray from what God has required of me? And so in your meditation, meditate on these things of, you know, here here are these aspects of my life. Here, here is what I have going on right now. Here's, here's what's going on at work. Here's what's going on in family. Here are the conversations I'm having with my children. Here are the things going on between me and my spouse. And is everything that I'm up to right now in line with what God has directed me to do? Or is there some way that I'm off track on these things? And, and... Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Three, be careful not to conjecture further than what God has revealed. And this is where the mind would wander into the what-ifs of God. You know, and I mentioned earlier the decrees of God and His, there are aspects of His decrees that we don't know. And it's not wrong to, to ask the what-if question. It's not wrong to ask the why question. But we have to be very careful that we don't fall into the error of Job's three friends. They saw Job, they saw all these problems that he had, and they jumped to conclusions. And they said, well, obviously, you're a, you're a dirty, rotten rascal, you're full of sin, and God's punishing you. Well, that wasn't true at all. I mean, none of that was true. But they, their, their mind, and they're meditating, okay, how can I help Job? What's Job's problem? And okay, I'm going to go counsel Job. Job, you've got to repent, man. You're, 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 you've sinned so many ways, God has given it to you. And Job's like, no, I, don't, I really don't think that's the thing. And we know from the Bible that wasn't the thing. Job, I mean, Job was a sinner, sure, but that wasn't the reason Job was having these difficulties. And so we have to be careful in our our meditation not to go beyond what God has already revealed. There's there's the secret things that belong unto the Lord our God. And and we're careful to guard ourselves in our thinking that way. And then... Number four kind of goes back to number two as well, but when thinking about your sin, be careful not to fall back in love with it. Or another aspect of this, I didn't write this part down, but when thinking about your sin and meditating on the way you have broken God's law, don't be crushed and devastated by it. Because in our meditating, we're also bringing in gospel thoughts Of the forgiveness that we have in Christ Jesus and so did you sin yesterday well of course you did was it awful of course it was but if you're born again you confess your sin God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and so don't let meditating on your sin drive you into despair and despondency of how awful you are I'm not even saved we got saved person wouldn't do all this Satan will take advantage of that discouragement. Satan will take advantage and and kick you while you're down. But but the gospel truth is no, I've been washed by the blood. I've I've been cleansed. I've been redeemed. Uh, Though I fall, I I shall not be utterly cast down. And you get back up, you repent, and off you go with the Lord again. And you'll fall again. And you get back up and you repent and you. You keep on, you just keep on walking with the Lord and don't stop. And so don't be discouraged in your meditation when you are reminded of all your sin. It's the Lord's mercy that the Lord would convict your heart. And so be thankful for that and then repent of those things and move on with God. So we'll stop there this morning and then Lord willing next week come back to some admonitions and counsel for walking with the Lord with friends, with with companions. So let's close in prayer now. Father, we do thank you that in your word and through godly instructors you have shown us a way that we are to walk. We pray that you would help us in all these things to be faithful. We Pray that you would, as we've prayed through this whole series of Sunday school lessons, that you would give us a greater desire and heart to walk with you. That, as we've considered so often in this study, to be careful and purposeful in the way that we order our lives, the things we do, the things we say, the way we act, the way we present ourselves, the way we respond to other people the way we think. We pray that you would give us hearts with a great desire after holiness and also hearts that understand the gospel truth of forgiveness. As we seek to pay more attention to our actions, we inevitably will discover more and more ways that we break your law. And so we pray for grace and help that we would We would simply walk with you all of our days. We pray that you'll bless the service to follow, bless our singing, bless the reading of scripture and the preaching of your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.